So I'm pretty sure that Jesus grew up around the sound of his mama singing. She probably sang while she rocked him as a baby. Maybe she sang while she was working around the house. I don't know. But we do know that Mary sang. The Gospel of Luke tells us about one of those songs she sang when she first found out that she was pregnant. Her, her body had suddenly been filled with the abundance of God's life, and Mary sang. That's what the Magnificat is. In many ways, it's a song about God's great abundance meeting the emptiness of our world. God has lifted up the lowly, she sang. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empties. It, it was actually the song of a poor peasant, and it's a pretty revolutionary song, but it's, it's not a song that she just made up herself. She was borrowing a lot of it from another mother named Hannah, who generations earlier had also had the abundance of God's life flow into her body. You remember that story? Hannah's barrenness was met with God's abundance, and she became the mother of Samuel. And when that happened, Hannah sang. She sang, those who were full have now had to hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry are now fat with spoil. In other words, everyone's fortunes are being reversed. Things are getting turned upside down. It was kind of a revolutionary song. And then hundreds of years later, Mary starts riffing off of Hannah's song and making it her own. And, and she starts singing her own version. And remember, Mary was this teenage girl in a village in the middle of nowhere Galilee, the, the village called Nazareth. And her song probably had that sort of beautiful folk-like lilting quality. And it was maybe easy to catch on to. Maybe it sounded like some of our little folk tunes. Something like, God had shown great strength just now, scattered the proud and lifted my brow. God has filled the hungry with good, fill our bellies with rich food. My soul magnifies the Lord, trust God's power forevermore. I don't know really what Mary's song sounded like, but whatever the melody, Jesus grew up in a house probably filled with his mama's song about God's abundance and God's great generosity, meeting the lowly, the weak, the victims of this world. From what we know about his parents, Jesus was likely schooled in the generosity of God. Through Mary's singing, through the stories of Joseph's faith, Jesus picked up this deep conviction that generosity is at the very heart of God, and it's an impulse that's been also placed in us. You see, Luke chapter 1 tells us Mary's song, in part because Luke wants us to recognize that Jesus grows up and starts enacting Mary's song. Everywhere he went, Jesus healed and transformed things and empowered victims. Everywhere he went, he was bringing forth new life. It just was flowing out of him. So that by the time he gets into the middle of his ministry, about the time that we find ourselves here in Mark chapter 8, we have seen it happen again and again. In fact, the disciples had all seen it happening again and again. In Mark's gospel, chapter 8 is actually the halfway point and a significant shift happens in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 8. Everything before this point 
is all about Jesus's teaching and healing, his casting out demons, cleansing the leper, feeding the hungry. For eight chapters, Jesus has been putting into practice the very abundance of God. And then we get to the end of that and into Mark chapter 8, and it starts to turn a little bit. As we get to the end of Mark chapter 8, Jesus tells his disciples about the cross for the very first time, and the whole narrative of the entire gospel shifts. So at the end of Mark 8, everything starts now moving towards Golgotha. So in a very important way, Mark chapter 8 is like this fulcrum point in the whole gospel. It's like the top of the hill, or maybe the bend in the road, where you can sort of look backwards and look forwards all at the same time. It's kind of that halfway point where you, you can see where you've been, and now for the first time, you can also see where you're going. And there in this bend in the road, Jesus, I think, decides that it's time to make the disciples do a little looking around, backwards and forwards. And so I want to take just a little bit of time for us to recognize what the disciples see and experience, and even to recognize what they don't see, because it, it has a lot to say to us about what we have been seeing this month and what we've been looking at as we explore this myth of scarcity. And it also has a lot to say about what we don't always see. So picture that scene of, of what Ben read for us just a moment ago. The disciples, Jesus, and the crowds, they're out there in the wilderness, and Jesus has been teaching, and it's been a long day, and Jesus can see that people out there are hungry, but he wonders if the disciples see it. And so he calls his disciples over, and he says, hey, look, all those people, they have nothing to eat. Now, since we've just dove into the middle of Mark, it's easy to miss that just two chapters earlier was when Jesus had fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. You all remember that story. That's the more famous story, right? But this is actually a different story from a different day. This is about a time when there was 4,000 people. The 5,000 had already been fed at one point, And now Jesus points out to the disciples, here we are again, guys. They're hungry. He doesn't really tell them what to do, not at first. He just makes them look. Hey, they have nothing to eat. What do you think you might do about it? <laughs> the disciples' first reaction is very similar to my first reaction when I see and pointed out somebody else's need around me. The disciples get a little defensive. And Mark writes it about, a really, about this in a really artful way. He says, well, well, how can we feed all these people out here in the desert in the wilderness. Now, if you were here last week or you grew up learning about manna in the wilderness, that image should jump out to you, right? In fact, Mark 8 is, is just full of these allusions to God's abundance that we've been following this month. And this question from the disciples is one of them. It is hinting at the very ancient story of Moses and manna in the wilderness. It's almost as if Mark is winking at us as he writes, how can we feed these people out here in the wilderness? Well, it's a good question. We might not know the answer exactly, but by now we should know that God has this really surprising way of feeding people in the wilderness. By now we should know that the God who created the world of abundance in the Garden of Eden can also free people from Pharaoh's myth of scarcity. 
And God, who comes to us to set us free from the myth of this ideology of scarcity, can also turn the deserts of our world back into life. That this God can meet us each morning with our daily bread, as we saw last week. So when we read, the disciples ask, well, how can we feed all these people out here in the wilderness? We should have a little bit of clue about what might be coming. Well, next, Jesus asks them, well, how many loaves do you have? In other words, have you noticed what you've already brought with you? Do you notice what you've already been given? Well, seven, they answer. And that's another little wink from Mark. It's a little way of pointing to something. How many days of creation were there? Seven days of God calling forth life out of the emptiness, remember? Seven days of God saying, let there be, and there was, and then even God saying to that, now be fruitful and multiply it. The number seven isn't there to tell us that there was exactly one more than six and one less than eight. No, it's actually a way of saying, well, I guess we have a little bit of the creator God's abundance packed in our backpacks. And that is all that the disciples actually need. That's all the crowd actually needs. Because just a little bit of the Creator God's abundance can go an awfully long way. And so next, Mark uses four words to describe what Jesus does with God's abundance. And once again, Mark is winking at us as he writes. He's pointing to something really important here, except now he's not looking backwards down the road behind him. Now Mark, with Jesus, is inviting us to look forward up ahead to where the road is going. As he writes, Then Jesus took the bread, and he gave thanks and he broke it, and he gave it to them. Those are familiar words, aren't they? They're Last Supper words. Those are Eucharist words. Jesus took, he gave thanks, he broke it, he gave it. These are the words of the great feast of God's life that is always being given to the world. In other words, Mark is telling us something really important about this bend in the road. He's looking back. And he's looking forward. And here it's all coming together. In our story this morning, Jesus is putting into practice God's great, abundant generosity. And suddenly, Genesis chapter 1 is happening all over again. New life starts multiplying out of the emptiness. And Exodus chapter 16 happens all over again. Manna starts showing up in the wilderness and people are receiving their daily bread. And yes, even the coming great mystery of the cross and resurrection, it starts coming together in this one moment in both the giving of life and the bursting forth of new life. In other words, a moment that looks like emptiness is being remade again and again and again with the very abundance of God. And so Mark says, and they took it, and they ate it, and they were filled. Just like Hannah had sung, those who were hungry are now fat with spoil. Just like Mary had sang, God has filled the hungry with good things. 
This is one of the great themes of the Bible. It's one of those really stubborn habits of our God. God's life and abundance keeps erasing the myth of scarcity. It's almost like God can't even help it. No matter how barren the wilderness looks to us, the bread of life keeps showing up. And yet we still have a hard time trusting that, don't we? The disciples, I mean, they certainly do. Remember, the disciples had actually been there and seen what had happened earlier with the 5,000 back in chapter 6. But apparently they thought, well, that, that was just kind of a fluke. It, it was a one-off. I mean, sure, God had provided them. God had provided then, but it, it doesn't necessarily mean it will happen today. Their imaginations are still stuck in scarcity. And so now God's life comes bursting forth again. But if you read chapter 8, if we keep going as we did when Trish read for us, it's pretty clear that the disciples, the followers of Jesus, still are not grasping the generosity and abundance of God. And so a few verses later, the disciples and Jesus are now out in a boat. And in verse 14, it says, they had forgotten to bring any bread, and they only had one loaf now with them. And it's kind of an image of scarcity showing back up. All they can see is one loaf now, no longer seven. And Jesus notices their scarcity and tries to warn them against it. Watch out, Jesus says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and beware of the yeast of Herod, which seems really odd to us, but in order to understand what he was trying to say, we have to go back and remember that the Pharisees were the legalistic ones who were always trying to manage things so that God's goodness would come. They thought that God would only show up and redeem them if they managed everyone and everything just right. So watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees as a way of saying, watch out for those who think You can only get God's goodness if you earn it. Who think that you have to achieve somehow God's abundance. Now, Herod was a little bit of a different story. Herod was a little bit more like Pharaoh we heard about a few weeks ago, grabbing up all he could. The the Herodians at that time, they actually wanted to monopolize and control everything. They were storing up all the riches they could. They were trying to manage it all. And watch out for that impulse too, Jesus says. It's not all yours to grab and store away. Watch out for that yeast, Jesus says. He's trying to make it really clear for us that a little bit of that tendency to hoard, a little bit of that tendency to try to earn God's abundance. Just a little bit of that yeast. And the myth of scarcity will start taking over the bread of your life. Watch out for it, Jesus says. Well, the disciples are still confused. They didn't understand what he was saying either, and they start mumbling about how many loaves they did or didn't bring with them. And Jesus really kind of blows a gasket here. Why are you still talking about having no bread? He says, do you still not get it? What's wrong with you? It's as if he's saying, why are you still acting like Pharaoh? Don't you get it? Can't you see God's abundance will always veto our scarcity? 
And so then Jesus decides it's time to, to remind them. It's like a little Bible trivia for us, but he's just reminding them. And he asks them really directly in verse 19 and verse 20, when I broke five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets were left over? 12, they all say in kind of this monotone unison. And when I broke seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets were left over? Seven, they all say in a monotone unison. And then Jesus has one of those great lines of frustration in verse 21. Do you still not understand? It's kind of like one of those parent moments when you want to grab your kids by the shoulder and say, are you not getting it? <laughs> Do you still not understand? Brueggemann actually says that's one of the most pathos-filled lines in all of scriptures. Do you still not understand? And the disciples are silent just crickets. There's just no response to Jesus's question. Seems that no matter what Jesus does, the disciples cannot really grasp the abundance of God and God's undying care and unending love for the world. Jesus keeps telling them, hey, God's abundance met you in the past and God's abundance will meet you in the morning, and God's abundance will meet you today, even if you find yourself in a whole wilderness of need. And you know, those disciples, they knew these stories even better than we do. They walked with Jesus. They saw him feed the hungry. They probably heard him humming his mama's song, and still they don't understand. And so on the very last night that Jesus would be with his disciples, he decides to show them God's abundance in a way that they could never forget. He was about to show them how God's life can break through even death, even death on a cross. He was about to show them how God's abundance will destroy the myth of scarcity once and for all. And so in order to help them understand that, he gathered around this table that was for them a celebration of that salvation from Egypt. It was their Passover supper. And he gathered around and he said, he took the bread again and he broke it. And he said, this is my life, which is broken and given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Keep doing it because you're going to keep forgetting. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is my life poured out for the very life of the world. Keep doing this so that you don't forget that my goodness and my abundance will always meet you in the morning. And so I want to invite you to take out your communion elements now. and to share them with one another. And to know that we gather around this table to remember Jesus's deep love for the world and, and his sacrifice. We gather around this table to remember our communion with one another, our connection to each other and to God. But I think in part, Jesus offers us this ritual of bread and cup to teach us also about 
the manna that will meet us, the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000 in the wilderness, the daily bread that will come to us again and again. Because this is what the life of God does in our lives. So I want to invite you to hold your bread up to one another as we've been doing and offer the blessing saying, this is the bread of life. Bread of life. Bread of life. Let's take. And then to take the cup of whatever you've brought with you. And knowing... (laughs) We'll hopefully find those later. Knowing that Jesus' blood being poured out is a sign of life. Blood is always a sign of life being given. Abundant life that has no end. So hold the cup before you and remember that this is the cup of our salvation. Cup of salvation. And as we've said so many times before, These are the gifts of God for the people of God and for the whole world. Thanks be to God.